0: We asked ourselves, what if we lined up some of the world's top minds in science, astronomy, technology, academia, and futurism, and got them to ponder some of the most popular what ifs? This is What If Discussed. Here are Teddy Wilson and Richard Garner.
1: Welcome to another episode of What If Discussed. I'm Teddy Wilson. And I'm Richard Garner. Today's question and episode is: What if we discovered aliens? This is a big one, and we have a lot on deck today. Richard, right out of the gate, what excites you the most about exploring this question, exploring the potential of alien life?
2: Well, I mean, I would first sort of qualify with my excitement comes from intelligent alien life, right? The of course, there's other things to discuss, which we'll discuss today. But I mean, bacterial microbes don't excite not, you? Not not to the way to the extent that you would think. But there's no question that you know the Star Trek vision, and I wasn't even a big Trekkie growing up. I, I loved Next Generation, but the idea that the vision of the future was so unified and so, let's say, beyond at least earthly aggression—it was utopian. It was it was utopian, but ironically, except with the other, the new others, which were. You know these other, you know the Romulans and whatever else. But at least there was it, there was something aspirational about this idea. But it's it's probably really just that innate desire to explore and to continue to move forward. They, I, I don't want to pretend that we don't have anything to discover or find or be excited about in that in that perspective on Earth. But there's just something that has always drawn me towards this idea that there's there's got to be other. Um, intelligent life, and, and and I would think a, an infinite universe is teeming with intelligent life. Like I don't remember a specific time, I like where this started for me, but I I don't know what you do. Like, is there a time you can pinpoint where this was? Really on your mind? There actually
1: is. And it was when I was a kid, probably five or six years old, and I was with my family up at the cabin of some family friends of ours. And I have an older brother who got me into everything I'm into today, you know, punk rock, science fiction, questions of the world, travel. And I remember lying there with him looking up at the stars and he planted the notion in my mind that there could be life out there. I forget exactly what he said, but he blew my mind by implying that there could be life out there and to a five or six year old me, this was this was a game changer. And then I started to discover films that explored this. Of course, E. T., which for a lot of people, that film, the Steven Spielberg motion picture, was a sense of wonderment went along with it. For me, it was actually a sense of terror. E.T. scared the (laughs) crap out of me. And it scared the crap out of me because I thought he was a scary-looking alien. He was a
2: scary-looking dude.
1: You know, and I was young when I saw that movie. Sure. And then the other scene that terrified me was when the house was under quarantine. For some reason, that just really terrified me. Then a couple years later, I watched a movie called The Last Starfighter, which, if you've never seen, is absolutely wonderful. It's an example of going out into the universe, and seeing what alien life looked like. And the depiction of alien worlds and, and uh, alien races in that film just really captured my imagination. Then, a little while later, I discovered on videotape, VHS or Beta, I forget which, <laughs> uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Of course, uh, yeah. another very optimistic... Um, uh, portrayal of what first contact could look like so those were the most impactful things conversation with my brother a couple films that scared the crap out of me a couple that kind of um stoked my sense of wonderment did you have a film or any sort of media that captured your imagination on this question
2: well close encounters for sure like in a like there's others but like if that's on tv today i watch it from front to back it, you know, wherever I catch it if it's playing it was playing I think because it was probably the 30th or 25th anniversary recently in theaters I went and saw it there was something uh, so captivating about that idea and again Spielberg right you know being able to explore that part of us that, that does have that natural wonderment and and that I could identify with the Richard Dreyfuss character in that that, that last scene and spoiler if you haven't seen it um uh, he he leaves. Yeah, he le- and he's selected as part of this group that's going to go off planet with the uh, the the aliens that have come to visit the um, the good aliens, for lack of a better way to say it. Right? I mean, this is not what the depictions became later on in the Independence Day and Aliens and all that, where it was just always. Uh, you know, some sort of aggressive attack from off-planet or whatever. This was still the idea, which I still believe, which is if you've advanced to the point of being able to travel and find ways, whether it's portal, stargates, or the traditional light speed or warp speed, to be able to go to that level, then you have evolved past the petty... Us versus them's of our world. That's your view. That's my view, and that's why it's probably still aspirational. That movie definitely touches. I loved Arrivals, uh, Arrival or Arrivals, Arrival, Arrival with um, sorry, her name's escaping me uh, now. Um, anyways, we'll get back to it. Um,
1: Amy, uh, yeah, uh, Amy
2: uh, Adams, Amy Adams, heavyweight champion of acting too. So I don't know why I forgot that. I love that movie. I love that depiction. But of course, for anybody that would be having this conversation, uh, you'd be remiss if you did not mention Contact.
1: Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a more modern example. It was, it was 1997, um, so not that long ago. And that, that's a film that I absolutely love. Robert Zemeckis directed it, of course, starring Jodie Foster. And our guest later in the show, Dr. Jill Tarter, is not only one of the world's most famous people within the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. She, of course, has worked with SETI. For years, she was also the the real life inspiration for the character of Ellie Arroway, played by Jodie Foster in the film Contact. So she'll be a really really interesting person to talk to about this. And there is, she's one of the most well respected people when it comes to talking about this um, this subject. So I'm I'm really excited she's going to join us.
2: Yeah, and I mean it's it's one of those uh, you know I don't uh, hero's too strong a word. I'm not a big fan of of deification of other people in that but there's definitely for me personally there's an honor to speak to somebody that's been at the forefront not only because of the movie the movie had a lot of impact on me because it also took a subject matter that had been treated differently over the course of especially early 50s and 60s it was just straight crazy you know you know the little green men era of that subject matter right right weird it's, science weird yeah, fantasy I, yeah. love weird science um, but in this particular case it's just a really, it's, you know, it's a story about her, first of all, it's it's predominantly a story about her, but it really, at least for me, tapped into what that, you know, what that incredible sort of collective uh, angst plus excitement would be if and when we make that historic discovery and make contact with intelligent, you know, life outside of this planet, and For me, somebody that's been at the forefront of this for 40 years, I think she was a director, whatever it is, you know, that's somebody who's dedicated their life to what I think is one of the most important questions we'll ever ask.
1: Yeah. And a question that we ponder in our everyday life a lot. And as you say, she's made a career out of out of pursuing it Uh, Contact as well I don't want to spoil the ending but one of my favorite endings to a film of all time because it is both ambiguous and definitive I won't say more than that but I know that uh, we're both really excited to talk to Dr. Tartar later in the show but we got a lot more before that including a bit more of an exploration of this question have a listen
0: there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe there are nearly 500 billion planets in the Milky Way alone and at least 10 billion of them are earth-like all these planets, and yet we've discovered exactly zero alien life forms. But what if we did? What if NASA announced that they found microbes in the oceans of Europa, or ancient alien ruins on Venus? What would that mean to our human civilization here on Earth? Would we consider that good news? This is what if, and here's what would happen if we discovered alien life. Since humans began searching for extraterrestrial life within our solar system in the 1890s, we're still waiting to encounter an alien life form. But if we did find one, that would be very bad news. Because in that case, we might as well be dead. It wouldn't look anything like the alien invasion you might imagine. Nobody would blast their super advanced weapons at us. Hopefully not. Even if they did, it wouldn't be that much of a problem. Because by the time we found alien life, we'd already be on our way to self-destruction. All because of the Great Filter. What kind of filter is capable of killing our entire civilization, and why? Let me go back a little bit. Basic probability asserts that alien life must exist somewhere in the universe. If that were the case, wouldn't we be able to see some signs of life out there? But we don't. The universe seems endlessly empty. It's this contradiction that's been blowing scientists' minds ever since they realized that the universe is very, very big. They called it the Fermi Paradox. It also says that all species in the universe go through the same evolutionary path no matter where they're from. First, the development of life anywhere in the universe starts with the right star system and a planet that has just the right conditions. Then, organic compounds assemble themselves into self-replicating patterns and eventually evolve into more complex multicell organisms. All the way up to the species with the big brain that eventually take over their own planet and change it according to their needs. Here on Earth, that happens to be us, humans. Then there's the last step, space colonization. That could happen for many reasons. Overpopulation and the need to spread out to survive. Conquest of solar systems one after another. Or even simple curiosity. Whatever the reason is, all civilizations will end up trying to colonize space. Some alien species may have been around for billions of years longer than us, but they still haven't shown up here on Earth. Looks like something is making it very hard to colonize a galaxy. Maybe even impossible. The Great Filter. Yep, the thing that might wipe out all of humanity. It's something very dangerous. Something that happens to every civilization that's advanced enough to go beyond their planet one of the steps on everyone's evolutionary path, something that takes maybe billions of years to go through. Having never met life on other planets means that the hypothesized Great Filter didn't wipe us out. Instead, we might be the first civilization to pass it safely and the first to reach this level of technology in the entire universe. But just because we haven't seen them doesn't mean they don't exist or never existed. There's a chance some aggressive alien species might have been on the way to Earth to destroy us all. But, since they never showed up on our planet, that means something destroyed their entire civilization before they reached Earth. The Great Filter? Alien life might sound like the most exciting discovery of our time. However, it might be better for us if the universe is absolutely sterile and that there are billions of new planets to be discovered and terraformed. But that's a story for another WHAT IF. Joining
1: us to discuss What If We Discovered Alien Life is the CEO of Underknown, publisher of the What If Videos, Steve Halford. Hey, Steve.
3: How's it going, guys?
1: Really good. Is there a more exciting question that we could ponder than than this one?
2: Not for me. Not for me either. It's the game changer. Like, I mean, who we... What... We could talk all day about almost every possible scientific innovation. We could ponder the future. We could talk about problems. But there's nothing that changes the game. Like in, and again, to be clear, intelligent life, right? I mean, right. I'm not talking about extremophiles in, a, in an asteroid. I'm talking about literally a living, breathing, breathing. I hope, uh, you know intelligent life form. I, I just think that's so game-changing that we can't even imagine how it would change the game.
1: Yeah, and how we as, a, as humanity would react to that as well, whether it be microbial life or, or intelligent life. Certainly intelligent life is the, the sexy option. Steve, when you and the what-if team were, were looking into this and researching the video, what did you learn about technology and how technology is either beginning to change the game in terms of the search for alien life or how it may change the game in the near future?
3: You know, in 1946, we took the first photograph from, from space, Uh, Americans got a hold of an old German V-2 rocket and sent it up into space. And we took the first black and white picture. And now you've got satellites we've put in there that have, like, left our galaxy. You know, they're out in the Kyber Belt. And the, uh, the telescope technology is able to look at exoplanets. Like, it's only been something since 1990 that we've known of exoplanets or seen them. And now we can start to see... with with this technology what the atmospheres are on remote planets Mm -hmm. and we know now that like there's there's software that is scanning the galaxy looking for those goldilocks planets the planets that are the same distance from a star and about the same size that we are and we can start to see the atmosphere of these planets and ones that are made up of the same thing we are And soon, from what I understand, in the next 5 to 10 years, we'll be able to scan for things like light pollution. Mm -hmm. And I believe in the next 5 to 10 years, we will discover life on other – intelligent life on other planets. And sorry,
2: when do you think?
3: I'm saying in the next 5 to 10 years.
2: Wow. I actually put the time
1: frame – even more truncated than that. I guess I'm very excited about this, but the James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to launch. I still believe it's scheduled to launch in 2021, and I think within a year of that launch, we'll we'll have definitive proof of alien life. I don't know if it'll be intelligent, advanced life, but I I predict in the next three years, you're going longer than Steve. No, and I? I'm
2: not even joking. I like I my heart skipped a beat when you said that. Like it's that. I mean, it, I don't even know how you can muster the appropriate or proportionate amount of. And again pick your word excitement or concern or whatever it is it's so big and game changing because part of me always hoped I would be alive right I always wanted I think you will be you know and this is like well I'm, I honestly I'll, I'll float out of here today because I don't know like you you get you get varying opinions on on uh, intelligent life discovery I I agree that we're we're probably going to see a lot of announcements over the la- the next decade about finding those Goldilocks planets, finding bacterial, microbial life in an asteroid and all things. Like, look at, remember when we were younger too, water was like, well, water, you're never, bam, we found water on Mars. It didn't yeah. necessarily rock the world the way I expected it to because we always said, if you find water, there's life. There's life. Right. So what will this do in terms of changing the game, changing the world? Hard to know. But if we're talking about you Know this happening in the next you know five to ten years, we better have a plan because it doesn't feel like I don't know what how, how 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 do you think we would react as a species if somebody's announcing on CNN tomorrow that breaking news we've discovered alien life.
3: I, I it, it'll it'll be big news, it could be uh you know like putting a man on the moon that sort of uh on on par with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, the, I think we'll, we'll, we'll discover it. We'll, we'll see it because we know there's billions of planets in the Goldilocks zone like ours. Um, it's a question really of, yeah, well, I mean, they'll be so distant from us, you know, we'll have really no way to communicate.
1: I mean, you can also Google Breakthrough Starshot, which is the um, the company, the conglomerate that's the, trying to send oh, very right. tiny, almost microchip-sized mini spaceships to Alpha Centauri, our With closest a laser. star. Exactly. And um, I mean, there are a lot of other really exciting uh, innovations being driven by the private sector in terms of this sort of exploration. Steve, I want to ask you about the Great Filter, because this is a really key concept to understand in terms of our, our search for life, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it, it absolutely is, and there's many. I, I guess uh, the the one thing I think the video it just touched on in the great filter really was that the carbon problem, like any, you know, the, the Fermi paradox says that all of all species have evolved in the, in the same manner, um, is that we any advanced civilization will have actu- have had to deal with the energy problem and will have had to deal with the carbon problem and that really before humanity can be an intergalactic species we're going to have to deal with the carbon problem and that's maybe why we haven't there aren't no there aren't any uh, advanced civilizations because they haven't dealt they haven't been able to solve the carbon problem and that's the the article we read that really inspired this video we just watched really was that, and that this is what we're up against.
2: That, it, because it, it presents a couple of scenarios. Like the, you know, for most of my life, but certainly the last X amount of decades, it was just becoming more and more and more compelling and more and more obvious that, of course, the numbers would just, um, you know, the Drake equation, all these other things that, of course, we're not alone. That I've, I have never, and or at least for decades, considered the possibility of being alone of that being a real possibility. And we've talked about, you know, five to ten years or, or shorter. But imagine the possibility that it was, in fact, a complete perfect storm on this little blue marble in the galaxy and that it did, because to your point, we could, we, could, we could do the math, we could look at the billions and trillions of planets, which I do when I say, of course, the odds would say. But it's interesting that we haven't contemplated how terrifying it might be if we're alone. Right, like it's it's a big it's a big universe to be kind of out here, and I, I don't know. There's parts of us maybe that maybe are expecting help in some of our problem solving going forward. That if we're able to unite together against, you know what I mean? Like, and if that's not out there, I, I <laughs> then it makes me a little more worried about what's happening here. Which I guess I don't really want to worry about to that extent because I don't know about the solutions. Well, you you touched on how we
1: as humanity will react. I believe when, not if. discover alien life, and there is that notion that we could have this kind of cognitive dissonance. We are not alone. Our Mm -hmm. our brains have not been trained and steeped to deal with this notion that there's something else out there. An intriguing other possibility is if we find out we are alone, what sort of cognitive dissonance in
2: a mass way that would result in. My heart skipped a beat again, but for different reasons there.
3: I would say the prevailing wisdom, you know, for the first half of my life was that we are alone. Right. Mm you know and it's only been i would say in recent years that most people are thinking that we're not like the- well, that
2: well and that's 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 the, i would say the common Chronology and trend for almost everybody out there. To your point, I think we grew up where if you even considered the idea or talked about it as a possibility, you were like, ah, oh, come on. Like you weren't taken You're seriously. Nuts. Yeah. You're nuts. But it was the, to your point, the technology, the Hubble telescope and and ultimately the Webb, James Webb telescope that's coming that just overwhelmed us with numbers that were, were almost impossible then to reasonably refute. Right? I mean when you got into just in our galaxy that were what are we, hundreds of billions or trillions of planets just in our galaxy, and we're not even talking about how many galaxies out there, it just seems it seems more unreasonable to believe we're alone now, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like which is a weird thing.
1: It is. And you know, there's there's a question I want to ask our guests later on in the podcast as well, and I'll I'll put it to you guys first, and that is Do you think we're searching correctly? Obviously, we can only search with the technology we have. But an idea that um, chronically intrigues me is that maybe we have been visited by alien life. Maybe we have discovered alien life. We just don't know it yet because we're not searching correctly. I mean, there could be planes of existence that we do not understand. Dark matter is something we don't understand. Could there be life in dark matter? Do you think that there is or could be life all around us. We just don't know how to look. I, I direct um, listeners as well to the, uh, the film Midnight Special. It's a recent movie Love by Jeff movie. Nichols. Love that movie. And it had, I won't spoil it, but it had a very interesting take on how we could discover alien life. Do you think we're looking correctly?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, our guest today, later on today, is Dr. Jill Tarter, which we're all super excited about because she was, of course, the inspiration for the Jodie Foster character in the movie Contact and right. a real game changer for a lot of people and how they de- they dealt with the subject matter in probably the most serious and scientific way that did not feel crazy or sci-fi. It was just, but I remember even then being like, "So let me get this straight: we are 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 super expensive and." you know, highly scientific efforts are, we're sending signals like into space.
3: Radio somebody. signals. Radio, Radio signals.
2: That's right. And I just remember thinking at the time and not like I have a better idea or better solutions, but I just remember thinking, uh, you know, I don't know. That's a bit of a shot in the dark. And obviously to this point, you know, uh, well, obviously Jodie Foster's character was successful. But we have not been in terms of making that contact and that connection. I mean, what do you think? Are we searching the right way?
3: I mean, we're doing the best we can with what we have. But yeah, are we missing the boat? P- possibly. I, I know uh, in, in Los Angeles, there's a, huge, uh, there's, a, there's a huge facility there that's listening to what's happening out in outer space. And we have been doing that for many, many years, and we haven't heard anything yet. But yeah, are, are we looking in the wrong direction? Are we using the wrong technology?
1: What's well, a fascinating topic to discuss. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for
3: having me, guys.
1: And coming up very soon, right after the break, is Dr. Jill Tarter, one of the world's most famous figures in the search for alien life.
2: Hey, everyone. Richard here. We are having so much fun making the show for you. We wanted to find the most knowledgeable experts and people to interview for this podcast. We hope you're enjoying it so far. We're currently creating the next season of What If Discussed, and we'd really appreciate your help. If you like what we do here, support us on Patreon. By contributing to our show, you will get exclusive access to our behind the scenes episodes, you'll get your what if questions answered, and you'll receive a personal voice message. Head over to our show notes and sign up to become part of our Patreon community.
0: In 2002, Discover Magazine recognized astronomer Jill Tarter as one of the 50 most important women in science. In fact, in 2004, Time magazine recognized her as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Aside from the accolades, of which there are many, Jill Tarter is an American astronomer best known for her work on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI for short. Tarter's astronomical work is illustrated in colleague Carl Sagan's novel Contact, which was adapted into the 1997 film starring Jodie Foster as protagonist Ellie Arroway who was largely based on Tartar's work.
1: Welcome back to What If Discussed. Today's question, what if we discovered alien life? Joining us to discuss, Dr. Jill Tarter, astronomer and of course well-known for her extensive work with SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Dr. Tarter, it is a true honor to have you join us. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. So perhaps no greater question that humanity has ever pondered is, what if we discovered alien life? So. I put it to you.
4: Oh, yeah. What if? Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, And I'm thinking that if it's going to happen, I mean, if if there is life beyond Earth, that it could very well happen in this century. I think that the century that we're in, the 21st century, is likely to be the century of biology on Earth and beyond.
1: And what do you think the first discovery will be? Will it be a small microbe on Europa? Will it be some sort of more elaborate life? What's your prediction for what that life uh, will look
4: like? Well, at the SETI Institute um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a a panel debate on that question about whether we're likely to find biosignatures or technosignatures first. My bet was on the TETNA signatures because we're already working on that. We are using radio telescopes and optical telescopes and starting to use the infrared and developing uh, sensitivity to transient signals that we haven't had before. And the, the search for the microbes within our solar system, so biomarkers that we will find with robots or maybe humans, or the biosignatures by studying the atmospheres of Of distant exoplanets, that all requires new technology, new rovers, new telescopes. And so it is going to be delayed, uh, whereas SETI is happening now. And so we could succeed today or tomorrow.
2: Well, I, I can say this, and I'm sure I can speak for Teddy here on this, but I mean, it's uh, we're both big fans of the movie Contact and, 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 and of course, the character that was based on, on, uh, on you uh, with Jodie Foster. And since that time and, and following your work and SETI's work since then, uh, I've always said to myself, if I, ever, if I ever get a chance to speak to Dr. Tarter, the first thing I'm asking her about is the Fermi Paradox. And I'm not, is it Fermi or Fermi, first of all? Let's get the pronunciation. I've always said Fermi. Okay, excellent. I've always so.
4: said Fermi, but I'm not Italian.
2: Excellent. Check that box. Because to me, this was something that was frustrating for me to even deal with. I couldn't imagine somebody doing what you were doing, which for the the people who aren't familiar with the Fermi paradox, it's essentially, and you tell me if this is an unfair summarization, but it's essentially saying in one breath that the universe is essentially infinite with trillions and trillions and trillions of possible planets but in this in another breath saying, well, because we haven't found anything or found evidence yet, that means there's no other life in the universe. And and I don't know if anything could speak more to the sort of maybe arrogance is too strong a word. Ignorance might be more fair about how we approach this as a species. But how do you feel about this idea, this notion that because we haven't found quote unquote evidence that that, that it's it's probably evidence that there is nothing to find? Ah, uh, well. Uh, I
4: don't think there's any paradox. And it's simple. We haven't hardly begun to look. I did a calculation when SETI turned 50 that said, here are all the parameters that we need to uh, explore if we're looking for electromagnetic signals. It's frequency, directions, time, modulation, polarization, sensitivity, all kinds of things. Nine different dimensions. And I said, Okay, so how big is this volume that we need to search through? And when I did that calculation, then I said, okay, here's an analogy. Let's set that volume equal to the volume of all the Earth's oceans. And how much have we searched? All right. And the answer is one glass of water out of all the Earth's oceans. Now, how much significance can you place in a null result given that scaling? So this is a huge problem and we've been working on it with the tools that we have. Fortunately, our tools will get better exponentially because of the uh, improvement in computing, but we've hardly begun to search. And so it's no paradox that we haven't found evidence yet.
1: Wow. And I mean, you know, if we've only explored the equivalent of one glass of water from all of our our oceans, the other question uh, is not about like volume and our search capacity. It is about, are we looking correctly? Are we looking in the right way? I mean, are there planes of existence that we don't understand where, that could be teeming with life? You know, we think about things like dark matter that we don't understand. Do you think we're looking in the, in the correct way? Could that be the issue?
4: Well, that certainly could be the issue. We could be doing an exquisitely great job at exactly the wrong thing. <laughs> I mean, success may require some technology that we haven't yet invented or physics that we haven't yet understood. That's perfectly possible. On the other hand, you can't do what you can't conceive. So we're doing the best we have with the knowledge that we have and with the tools that we can use.
2: Uh, I'll, read you, uh, I'll read you this quote, Dr. Tartar, that, again, I can say that when I remember this quote coming out, I remember thinking to myself again, you know, years before this interview, wow, I wonder what Dr. Tarter would think. And, of course, you did respond to this. For those people who remember uh, the late Stephen Hawking's famous quote that, one day we might receive a signal from a planet, and referring to potentially ha- ha- habitable alien planets – and uh, his, his response was that we should be wary of answering back. Meeting an advanced civilization could be like Native Americans encountering Columbus. That didn't turn out so well. And then, if I remember correctly, you did respond to that, although graciously and diplomatically, you disagreed. Could you explain?
4: With all due respect to, to Stephen, who was brilliant, no one really knows the answer to this question. And I think there is another possibility, which is um, the, the devastation to the native species when um, Europeans reached uh, the New World had a lot to do with disease vectors, and it had to do with um, actual contact, physical contact. And so uh, what I postulated was If we're talking about a physical contact scenario, then they've come here because we certainly don't have the technology to go there. And if they've come here, that means that their technology is far more advanced than ours. That means to me that they're an older civilization. And I don't see how you can get to become an old technological civilization unless you outgrow the aggression um, that was probably part of what helped to make you intelligent during the evolutionary process in the first place. I would say that any, any advanced technological civilization um, is likely, if they're going to be sustainable, is likely to be kinder and gentler, the sort of cultural evolution that Steven Pinker's been talking about. And so that it might not turn out to be so bad for the natives, if we all work at um, trying to make an encounter uh, beneficial to both sides.
1: And is this, is this kind of the idea that if you're, if you're super advanced, you've
4: perhaps transcended aggression? Well, I think that you have to in order to be long lived. I mean, it, to, to imagine getting to a place where you have a very long future and it's sustainable that doesn't seem to me very compatible with aggressive behavior and again it's drawing on the ideas of steven pinker who shows that you know we are kinder and gentler today than we have ever been as a part of the process of cultural evolution
1: So when Richard and I learned that we were going to be interviewing you, one thing that we said we definitely wanted to ask you was this question. And it's about a scenario that I imagine you and your colleagues at SETI have run through in your minds, you know, thousands or millions of times. And that is, what does it look like on the day that we make contact, on the day that we establish that there is indeed other life in the universe? Will it have a unifying result in terms of humanity's reaction? Will it result in a mass cognitive dissonance that we've not yet experiences humanity, what do you think? What what will it look like on that day?
4: Well, we've talked to, to many experts in a lot of different fields and held workshops on this question. Um, and the basic answer is that uh, we will respond at the time uh, in accordance to whatever belief systems are in place, right? It's not very helpful, uh, but I think that because so much of the world's population has now thought about this question, and uh, it has become part of our cultural ethos. I think that the, the potential for cognitive dissonance is very small, and I uh, imagine that it will be enormous front, front page news for maybe a week, and then the Kardashians will do something. <laughs> and it'll go to the middle of the paper. Really? Um, It'll go below the fold in a week. I think that it's going to be really exciting for the scientists who are involved in trying to understand whether there's any information encoded in whatever we detect and how to interpret it, how to decode it. But it's going to probably not be very easy. Uh, I don't think we're going to get um, a Morse code that we can understand very quickly. And so there will be, uh, there may be some potential for a north-south divide because the, the, the direction in which a signal arrives, uh, from which a signal arrives, may be accessible from only one or the other hemisphere. And there might be then a scramble to make sure that information is 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 widely shared. That's the only conflict that I can really envision. Um, all countries will, will scramble, I would think, to to try and get their own piece of uh, the the information coming in. I'm assuming it's not a one time one off event that it that it will be there to be uh, found by, by other entities. And so people will scramble to be able to have access. You're also going to want to have many different nations gathering data because the Earth rotates. And unless, again, you, it just happens to be that the direction of the signal is circumpolar, that is, above the north or the south poles, one, one nation isn't going to be able to continuously monitor, and you're going to want lots of people uh, participating. I think, for me, this whole, what this will do is hold up a mirror to everybody on the planet and say, look in that mirror. You earthlings, you are all the same when compared to whoever is generating this signal some other entity that evolved, co-evolved with a planet that isn't Earth. And so I think that the potential for trivializing the differences among humans is high. And for me, that's very hopeful because we have all these challenges that don't respect national boundaries. And we have to figure out a way to address them in a global way we have to think of ourselves as earthlings first and and so i think that the the detection of life the reception of a signal uh, would have that unifying effect but you know i'm an optimist <laughs>
2: it's That's interesting I mean. yeah because uh, the the person that actually famously made that sort of exact analogy was ronald reagan of all people in the 80s
4: you can also find it with hillary clinton and every uh, a number of other politicians but they postulated it as a threat imagine that there was an alien fleet coming to attack the earth wouldn't that unify us all and and i don't like that negative context i have reasons to think that that might not be happening so i just think that the detection of a signal would have the same effect
1: in terms of the search and, and, and how we search and whether or not we're searching correctly, the flip side of that is the question, is it possible we, we've already been visited? I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the, the interstellar object in 2017. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's ua. Am I saying that at all correctly? <laughs> I am not.
4: It's probably more like Amuamua
1: amu, So, this was the interstellar object that passed, you know, in, in cosmic terms, relatively close by to Earth. It was a bit of a, a surprise for astronomers and scientists, and it looks, it's a, kind of a, a long object. And, you know, soon after it passed by, some people began to speculate, you know, it, it's a wild speculation, but could this be an alien spaceship? I mean, was this perhaps not a natural object? Could this have been some sort of craft? I know that's a, a bit of a wild speculation, but... It begs the question is, is there any chance that we have already had evidence of alien life, but we just don't see it like that?
4: Well, certainly with Oumuamua, we all remembered Rendezvous with Rama. And we used our uh, telescopes to observe it, as did other groups in different, at different frequencies, because it was a possibility. This is the first time that we have detected um, an object from another star system within our solar system. Now we've detected another one, right? And with the new telescopes that we have coming online in the next years, we'll be finding lots of these objects because indeed it is possible to swap material between star systems. So we looked at Muamua. It was um, a kind of a speculative idea, but it was certainly worth t- trying. And it turns out that it's um, it's a particularly strange kind of comet. So,
1: And, and you, you referred to a second interstellar object, and that was, of course, in August 2019, I believe, Comet 21, a.k.a. Borisov. In, in looking at both the Muamua and Comet 21 Borisov, did, did we learn anything that we, we didn't know already?
4: Um, well, we have, because of the shape of um, Muamua, there have been new theories about how you could take something that um, is not initially uh, long and skinny, and through its eons of interstellar and solar system travel, shape it as it is. Um, so we're
2: the jury's still no, perhaps.
4: I mean, yeah, it's, it's early times, right? These are the first two of what will be many that we will find in the future. And I think it will be um, relative comparisons of these objects to similar objects in our solar system and, and um, among themselves that will teach us a lot.
2: I'm gonna make a wild assumption and, and say that you've probably seen close encounters of the third kind once or twice. Because I, I picture the scene at the end where obviously they have prepared for not only contact, but the the actual migration, if you will, of X amount of humans, you know, jumping aboard a spaceship as, as sort of this cultural exchange for lack of... And I wonder about people like yourself, if you had the opportunity, if that was ever presented. Let's say, for instance, there was a there was a group that, you know, we ultimately did make contact and they were looking for people to go off planet. Or is that something you would sign up for? Is that something that excites you?
4: Yes, if, there's a caveat, if I can send information back. How do you, how do you mean exactly? I think it, it benefits me to take such a trip. But if I can't pass along whatever it is that I learn, then I haven't really helped the rest of the planet. So uh, I think it, this cultural exchange really has to involve an information exchange so that humanity can learn about the other culture. Think about it. Think about all we know about ancient Greece and Rome and Shakespeare's England from the, the volumes that were written and passed forward in time. We can't ask them questions in return, but we've learned an enormous amount.
1: Right, right. Well, I I mean, unfortunately and sadly at this point, the only way we can experience alien life now is through science fiction through through movies. And as Richard mentioned earlier, of course, in the 1997 film Contact, Jodie Foster's character, Dr. Ellie Airway is based on you. I've, I've read online that uh, Jodie researched the role by meeting with you and speaking with you. So what did you think of of her per- portrayal in the film? And what did you think about that film overall and the way that it um, portrayed a possible alien contact?
4: Um, I thought it was a great film. Jodie Foster is a very, very intelligent actress and a very kind person, actually. So I thought she did a great job in talking about the work that we do up to the point where she succeeds because we haven't yet done that. And then I think, well, I mean, Carl wrote a really good story and I liked that the, the thing that you never see in the movie is the be alien being, right? So you have to use your imagination. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that Mother Nature is probably a lot more imaginative than we are. And something that co-evolved with a different planet is likely to be quite spectacularly different than us. And I like the fact that it didn't get portrayed by some you know, actor in spandex with, with wild things hanging off them, right? <laughs> so makes um, sense. I, I think the film was, was wonderful. And in fact, since it was just 20 years old last year, was it last year or two years ago, we, we saw it a lot. We did a lot of speaking and it's held up. And what we need is a sequel. And I think that that may happen.
2: Well, that really is that breaking news here on, uh, on what if?
4: I've been told that, that uh, Carl's Widow, Andrian, is, is working on something. Carl so Sagan's, that would be great wow. because Zemeckis changed the ending of the film in order to set up a sequel because he oh. liked to sequels. Um. Anyway, so that might be a pleasant... Opportunity in our future. Generally.
2: Just, just curious because uh, again, you, you were referencing Carl Sagan, and for those that don't know, Carl Sagan, who wrote Contact and, and based the characters, as Teddy was saying, on Dr. Tartar. I mean, so obviously, I'm guessing you spent significant time with, with, uh, with Carl Sagan, and he's he he coined a term that we like to use here a lot when we're talking about the people and the the people that love the videos. At what if you know, the term wonder junkies, right? People that just. <laughs> are fascinated and, and and endlessly curious, and that would certainly describe somebody like yourself. I'm just curious, what were those meetings like with, with Carl Sagan and, and being able to sort of talk about the wonders of the cosmos?
4: Well, Carl was, was pretty amazing. He was a colleague and he was also on our board of trustees at the SETI Institute when he died. Uh, so the meetings were uh, pretty intense. Uh, I had a Personal experience, um, I went through breast cancer treatment at the same time Carl was going through his initial treatments. Um, fortunately, mine was more successful than his. And so we got to share the um, the really weird fear of ingesting all this poison in order to kill off something that will otherwise take you out. So um, that was a very intense and um, personal experience that I got to share with Carl. Um, he, uh, he was always on. I mean, he was there was never a quiet Carl sitting in a corner, right? He was always <laughs> the center of any conversation and was always quite informative and, and you know, funny and uh, kind of amazing. Yes, and he was curious, and I am curious, and... I think that the, uh, I find it hard to be old enough so that I am experiencing a world where there are people who don't know Carl Sagan. He was such um, an omnipresent celebrity uh, in his time that everyone, he was, a, he was a cultural reference, and everyone knew him and knew his work. But today, young people haven't, had that experience. And I think that they're, they're the poorer for it. Um, but uh, he certainly started a trend in science communication that, that we all need to, to emulate.
1: Fascinating. Dr. Tarder, just to, just to wrap it up, um, do you think we're reaching now a, a tipping point and uh, kind of an inevitability in terms of discovering alien life. And by that I mean with things like the upcoming launch of the uh, James Webb space telescope, or just the fact that, you know, it it wasn't that long ago that we discovered the first exoplanet. Now these discoveries of exoplanets seem like they happen every week, including Proxima b in the Alpha Centauri system, which is considered the most Earth-like planet we've discovered. It really does seem like in the last few years, um, there has been a flood of a discovery of exoplanets and insights about um, galaxies and solar systems beyond our own. So is this kind of the tipping point that we're in right now or have we even not reached the tipping point yet?
4: No, I think so because there's another game changer as well as exoplanets and that's extremophiles. So when we started the SETI work we didn't know about any other planets beyond our solar system. And there was a theory about how planets formed, which if it had turned out to be correct, would have uh, suggested that planets would be very, very rare. And so as part of the original SETI work, we began workshops. How might we find exoplanets? Bill Barucki was part uh, the uh, principal investigator for the Kepler spacecraft. Bill was part of those workshops, and it took 25 years before um, the Kepler spacecraft was launched. But now we know there are more planets than stars. That's a fantastic revelation. And the other thing is that we know that life can exist beyond the very narrow bounds that I was taught as a student, where you had to have sunlight. You had to have a sort of neutral pH. It couldn't be too acidic or too basic. You... um, had to be not too hot, not too cold, not too much radiation, yada, 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 all wrong. We've now discovered life forms that live in this incredibly expanded uh, environmental ranges. And so extremophiles and exoplanets have been game changers. And I think the game is going to change very rapidly going forward.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to hear people hedge their bets now, and I'm sure you've experienced this more than anybody, going from the years of eye-rolling and snickering to now pretty much anybody you talk to is like, oh, well, obviously there's, there's intelligent life in the universe. Like, of course, the math just makes sense. Yet, I'm guessing over the course of your life, those people were few and far between.
4: They certainly were. And, you know, number two is all important here. So in physics, when you have a singular phenomenon, you only have one example, it's unique. It could turn out that it is unique. So we could, in fact, be alone. But the moment you find a second example, then you count one to infinity, right? You know that if you've got a second example, there will be many more out there. So um, we do not know the answer to the are we alone question we are trying to do searches that are significant enough that a null result can be interpreted. Um, But we haven't, as we talked about earlier, we really haven't gotten very far with that. But number two is going to tell us that there are lots
1: we're not the exception.
2: Right. Which is, it was actually quite comforting. That's all the other conversation because it would be pretty lonely out there. Dr. Tarter. we could go on forever. And as Teddy said off the top, it's a, it's beyond a thrill uh, and an honor for us to talk to you. Uh, uh, really exciting stuff. Uh, we really appreciate your work. The world is better for it. And uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you on the news sometime when uh, contact is made, hopefully in the very near future. But uh, if if it isn't next week, then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up with you in, in, uh, in, in season two and see where you're at. How does that sound?
4: Sounds good to me. And, and if I'm ever on the news, you better be asking me hard questions about how I can prove it.
2: <laughs> Giddy up. We'll, 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 we'll hold you to that. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time today, Dr. Tartar.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye.
2: More of What If Discussed coming up after this. Hey guys, we'll be back to the episode in just a sec. But I just want to remind you that if you're enjoying this episode, your friends might enjoy it too. So take a screenshot now or screen record your favorite part of the podcast and share it to your Instagram stories and tag us at whatif.show. Help us make science accessible to everyone. Now, back to What If Discussed.
0: This is What If Discussed. Here are Richard Garner and Teddy Wilson.
2: Welcome back to What If Discussed. Teddy Wilson, Richard Garner here. Great discussion, obviously, with somebody that I think we... Revere might be too strong a word, but we both, you know, respect uh, in terms of this particular pursuit and exploration of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence on this planet. Arguably... If you were to build a, round, a Mount Rushmore of people that you would want to talk to about this, I think Dr. Jill Charters first. What did you? Her face l- would be on the mountain. Her face would be on the mountain, and I don't know who else is on the mountain. Really, I mean Carl Sagan, who she talked about. Interestingly enough, for those who don't know, I think we mentioned it earlier. But Carl Sagan wrote the book, The Mo- Contact, which of course the movie was based on, and she had a relationship with him. But actually, when that was brought up, she also reminded me. And you and the listeners that Carl Sagan was I I think he was on the board of SETI right so she had a working relationship with Carl Sagan probably throughout a lot of her early career because he was somebody that was out there very involved in that search not just talking about it on Cosmos and 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 being a science communicator is very involved in it so she and she she actually was I think quite generous to share a a pretty personal and human story about them both, I think, experiencing cancer treatment at the same time.
1: Yeah, I I was really touched by that, by that story. And that was, that was really, that was amazing of her to, to share that with us and getting that, um, that inside perspective and that personal history with Carl Sagan as somebody who we all look up to so much. Any sort of wonder junkie, I think, knows the name Carl Sagan. Most of us have, have, um, dove into his work pretty extensively in our our curiosities. I was struck by how she's still so optimistic and emboldened because, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you devote your life to something and it does not come to fruition... Uh, you, I think you could react one of two ways. You could, you that could light your fire even more uh, to pursue what you've been pursuing and try to find those answers. In this case, alien life, or it could uh, kind of have the opposite effect, and it could make you a little bit disenchanted. Uh, I love that she's still so emboldened, still so optimistic that this is inevitable and that it is it is imminent, and her excitement about this is infectious.
2: She actually sort of gave us a bit of a reveal there I thought and I remember feeling a bit emotional when she said it because she she did it a bit in that sort of self-deprecating manner you would do but you could probably if you had her you know if you were if you were measuring her vitals there's there's probably a real emotion there because she said well the difference between me and the character Jodie Foster played was the the Ellie Haraway in the movie was successful Mm. Right, right. That that film basically starts with getting the message back, and she, and you could. I, and I remember my heart dropped because she was essentially saying, "We, I haven't, we haven't." And you you know that she she like she must have watched that and and been you know of course inspired, but also you know there's that FOMO or for lack of a better whatever. Right, you 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 worry that maybe you're never going to be able to come into work that day and hear that signal coming in from some intelligence and and really if your life's work has been dedicated to this, you just hope for her that this happens, a, that it happens to her, that they are successful at study to be able to make that connection, that contact, but also that if, and when there is a discovery that it does happen within her lifetime and our
1: lifetime, I want to be around for it as Mm -hmm. well. I definitely want to be around for it as well. And I think that, also, that question uh, of are we searching correctly is one that we can also continue to explore. Not going to lie
2: to you, Teddy, when you asked her that question, I remember thinking, wait a sec, Teddy is asking the person who has been at the forefront of the search for 30 to 40 years um, if we might be searching incorrectly. And again, speaking to her grace, to her overall integrity rather than be somebody who'd be defensive and go well what are you talking about how dare you she was like we very much could be she's a scientist yeah she was a scientist she, she didn't miss a beat though she was like almost like yeah like you know like, i'm open to whatever i want to ultimately make contact but she was certainly willing to explore the possibility that they have been uh doing it wrong and If she reacted poorly to that, were you going to explore the possibility of a new co-host? <laughs> no, I mean honestly, in that, it, like, I was, I was worried because you, you know it's kind of in the line of of when they say don't don't meet your heroes, right? right. You know, you are worried that somebody you might hold in, in higher esteem and then they, they, they demonstrate to you that they're human. And that would have been a very human response to 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 feel like, you know, a default to say, you know, what are you attacking my No, but she was as a scientist to your point, she was very much like almost, yeah, let's let's start broadening out the search. Let's come up with different ways. Yeah. And even when we brought up you know Jodie Foster, right? Which you know you're always wanting, you're hoping to hear that the, the experience was good, and I was I was thankful to hear from her that indeed her experience with. Um, you know, studying Dr. Tartar and her work yeah. uh, over the period of getting ready for the movie was in fact a very positive one she had very good things to say about her yeah and that she did a lot
1: of research and a lot of homework I actually interviewed Jodie Foster which was a highlight of my life because I'm such a fan of her, her acting I interviewed her a few years back and I told her how much the film contact meant to me and she spoke about how proud she was of that movie and so getting to talk to Dr. Tartar today feels like full circle and it was a real honor
2: did you come out of it feeling because again she was, you know, she was still quite optimistic about the timelines too, right? And and again we're, we've taught, we've touched on extremophiles and 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 the abundance of exoplanets that we're we're seeing the new technologies, the James Webb Telescope that you know as you touched on earlier is probably going to expedite this tenfold, right? There could be like literally the thing is okay, it's online. Holy smokes, this is what we're seeing. So you do get the feeling I. I'm probably a little biased that we will see and, and discover something relatively soon but she certainly sounded like she believed that as well how did you after talking to Dr. Tarter, how did you feel about that that imminence or inevitability I I, I- I feel good about it. I feel
1: um, emboldened that it is imminent and it, that it is inevitable. And I've always, and I stick to the fact that I think th- the timeline that we're looking at is the next two to four years. Obviously my opinion is nowhere near as informed as Dr. Tartar's, uh, but I like that she also kind of had a short time frame in terms of the, the horizon for this. And I stick to that. My, my opinion is two
2: to four years. Well, I mean, that's super exciting to me. I would, uh, I would like, and she, she she broke some news on some stuff as well. I remember her sort of giving us some insights into, um, you know, into some of the work, but also the potential of a sequel for the movie Contact, which nobody, like, I've never even heard that suggested. I mean, it's a it's a movie that was made in I think nineteen ninety seven. I think she said Robert Zemeckis had, I don't know if he had, did you say he had two endings or something like that, where one, the ending that was ultimately, you know, in the final cut implies some possibility of moving forward. So if they come out with like Contact 2, and again, you heard it here first, I would be, I would take that as a consolation prize in lieu of seeing and or making contact in the near future. Because you think the timeline's a little longer. I worry that it is. I, I mean, it's just too hard. The other thing that stood out was her reaction about how this would go down, right? She was actually... I don't want to say like she, I don't want to make it sound like she was cynical but she certainly was alluding to the way media is today the lack of attention span the echo chamber and that essentially it would be big news for like a couple of days and then the kardashians in her words would do something else and it would be taken off the front page or the front fold as you said I love that she said that it would go below the fold yeah below the <laughs> fold I I don't want to believe that I can't say that there's tons of evidence that would suggest... We just don't know. Ha- it's unprecedented. But I'm, I'm of the belief that when this happens, the world stops. I think part of what will
1: dictate the degree to which the world stops or certainly how long it stops for, how long it dominates the news cycle, for example, will be something that we've talked a, a little bit about in this episode, and that is what the alien life looks like. Mm-hmm. If it's microbial, if it's on Europa, versus if it's intelligent life fully formed life, um, life that is more advanced than us. I think those two possibilities will help to dictate how long it stays in the news cycle. Microbial life, I can see, I would agree with her. I think over... pretty short time span it will kind of fall below the fold in terms of press coverage but if it's intelligent life I don't know I think it changes everything and I don't think there's ever another headline written
2: for the next two years and I would hope you're right because I have there have been discoveries that I've seen whether it be exoplanets and stuff like that where I've been reading like let's say a CNN web and it's like the eighth story right and there's seven other stories. And I'm like, what? Like, how is this buried? Like, this is literally the game changer for how, you know, life would move forward. Yet, we're still at that place where it's not necessarily it, – literally until a spaceship comes and lands on the White House lawn, I don't think it gets our attention, you know, in the way that it should. Right. And I think, like Fox, Mulder, and the
1: X-Files, both of us want to believe. Yes. I also want to believe that it could have a unifying effect on humanity. I think that might be a little bit naive, but I'm going to stick to that um, naive hope.
2: Truth is out there, my friend.
1: It is indeed. We just have to find it. Well, thank you again to Dr. Tartar for joining us. That was an absolutely fascinating chat. And thank you, listener, for tuning in for another episode of What If Disgust.
0: You've been listening to What If Disgust, hosted by Richard Garner and Teddy Wilson. Thank you to researcher Jay Moon. Technical producers Adam Karsh and Antoja Fyadur. Producers Ira Haberman and Stephen Henrik, Supervising producer Richard Garner. What If brand and channel supervisor Raphael Fei, And executive producer Steve Hulford. For more, visit whatifshow.com forward slash podcast. This has been an underknown Media production. It feels as if the world is moving at a faster rate than ever. Every day, smartphones are getting smarter, AI is becoming more intelligent, and our environment seems to be getting worse. If you were to travel 50 years into the future, what would the world look like? That sounds like a story for another What If. Coming up next time on What If Discussed.